Last week I was talking with uh, folks back in the sound booth there, and they were looking at the topic of my sermons the next couple of weeks, which have to do with the lovely subject of sin, and we were chatting about that, and I, I had a, I remembered an old story I used to tell about the little boy that went to Sunday school, and his mother picked him up after Sunday school, and she asked him, well, what did your teaching, teacher have a lesson about today? And uh, he said, I think it was about sin. And she said, well, what did he say about that subject? And the little boy thought a minute and he said, I think he was against it. <laughs> well, we hope so. You know, we, we're all against sin. We learned last time uh, any true born-again believer is going to struggle against sin. It's the mark of the unbeliever who can happily sin, who loves his sin, who doesn't perceive his sin, who justifies his sin, but the believer struggles against it. So we took it like this last week. We talked about that overarching uh, truth that John began with in this topic of the Christian life and the reality of sin that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's where we start with the uncreated holiness of God and his perfection and all of his glory. And this statement was followed in the text of John by five if clauses. Three of those if clauses are false claims. Two are corrective words. The false claims are this claim that, oh yeah, I know God, I'm a Christian, I'm in fellowship with God, but that person's walking in complete darkness. Well, that person is deceived. And the person who says, we have no sin or I've never sinned, I've got no abiding sin principle within me, this is also deception. Rather, the believer walks in the light and finds this great struggle with sin. And therefore, we don't deny our sins, we confess them. This is part of our sanctification. So there are a lot of false religious ideas when it comes to the doctrine of sin. They were present in John's time. They are present also in our time. And we understand that our sanctification is not denying our sins, but rather acknowledging them, confessing, and living under the abiding grace of God. Now, when you teach the doctrine of justification like this, that you can have the free forgiveness of your sins through faith in Christ, by faith alone, and Christ alone, by faith alone, grace alone, there can immediately raise in our minds a question, and that question is, if I am justified by faith, if I have freely given salvation through faith, and there's no danger that my salvation can be lost, can I therefore then sin all I want. If you look at the book of Romans, for example, chapters 4 and 5 expound the doctrine of justification by faith, that uh, God freely pardons our sin through faith in Christ alone. The immediate question then of chapter 6, once that doctrine has been expounded, is, well, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, the implication that one could come to is if your sins are freely forgiven in Christ and uh, you don't lose your salvation by some other sin that you commit, therefore you can just sin all you want and... Grace will cover it. 
And so when Paul raised this question in chapter 6 of Romans verse 1, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He answered that question with the strongest way that you can say no in the Greek language. He said, may it never be. Absolutely not. And in this passage as well, as we see this doctrine of justification by faith in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, immediately John touches on this issue. If we ignore the chapter division and we go straight to chapter 2 and verse 1, same topic, same passage, he goes on to say, no, I'm writing these things not that you may sin and sin in an abounding way all you want, I am writing these things that you may not sin. And so it is not a license to sin, which is granted by this glorious pardon we have today. And so we want to continue on with this topic this morning. And John simply says this in these first two verses. My little children... I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so we go to part two here as we continue to discuss the Christian life and the reality of sin. I think the point we make today, J.C. Ryle summarizes it very well. The true Christian hates sin, flees from it, fights against it, considers it his greatest plague, resents the burden of its presence, mourns when he falls underneath its influence, and longs to be completely delivered from it. Yes, it is the characteristic and the mark of the believer, born again of the Spirit, that he will struggle against indwelling sin. It is the mark of the unbeliever who goes on to sin without pang of conscience. So we are in the same topic, same idea, just continuing with this study of the proper response to sin in the Christian life, and we continue to build our understanding We're building really upon Pastor Scott's expounding of Genesis chapter 3 and what damage and destruction was done through original sin, the sin of our first parents. So we just continue on now and consider it in the life of the Christian. So a couple of simple points this morning. Number one, when I look at this command, I write to you that you may not sin, an admonition, an exhortation, whatever you want to call it, what we are to do. But then there's also comfort in this passage as we will focus again on what Christ has done for us. As we look at this command, I want you to notice two things. First of all, it's written with a pastoral concern, and I want to talk with you about that because that's important. Then we'll go on and look at this uh, clear explanation that uh, John gives to us about uh, not sinning. So John writes with a certain spirit. He says to them, my little children. And he really doesn't even use the normal word for children. He uses a diminutive form of it, which really says, you know, little children. A very endearing reference. A very gentle way to say something. Paul used this language also when he wrote to some of the churches and the Lord Jesus 
used it for his disciples. Why does he use this language? Well, you know, John tends to use this kind of language whenever strong admonitions are given. And he's not really talking about the most happy subject in the world here. He's talking about our sins. And so he's writing very gently. You know, sometimes when we're being exhorted, when our sins are being pointed out to us, when we're being told what we should do and what we ought to do, you know, the flesh sometimes uh, doesn't like that. And our pride can rise up. And so this command comes in a very gentle way, one, the one sharing it, caring sweetly for those who are receiving it, John, as a spiritual father, perhaps he knew some of the people he was writing to, thinking that if he writes in this way, perhaps it will be easier to receive it because it's going to be very important to receive this exhortation. It's a fatherly exhortation. Uh, Pride and sin is the great enemy of Christian living, and so John is uh, dealing with a delicate topic here. Sin is mentioned 17 times in the book of 1 John. So the exhortation comes with a pastoral spirit. And I, and I hope we, we understand that, that, you know, when we preachers and pastors uh, preach against sin and point out sin, that I hope you understand it comes not um, uh, to lash the listeners with, but that sin is very destructive and damaging. I remember some, one time back when I was a young pastor, I was about 35 years ago maybe, and I received a call late one night from a distraught young wife. In fact, she was a newlywed, and she was crying on the phone, and she had had a fight with her new husband, and he had stormed out of the house. I knew them, or I thought I knew them. It was a small town and a small church. I tried to calm her down and listen to her, and I finally said, well, let, why don't you just go to bed and uh, take it easy, calm down, you guys come and see me tomorrow, we'll talk about it. She said, no, no, Pastor Jeff, you don't understand. He has done this before. I know what he's going to do. He goes to this tavern, and he'll just drink and drink and drink, and when he gets more drinking and more drinking, he just gets more and more angry, more and more mean, and then he's going to come home, and he's really going to give it to me. He's done this before, and I'm afraid. Well, I didn't know these guys that well, and I didn't like hearing that, so yeah, I went and chased that guy down. I'm not one to meddle in the middle of someone's marital spats, you know, or to judge husbands and wives harshly for their worst marital moments. Maybe you can think of some of those. <laughs> and... Uh, but uh, I did. I, I went and found this guy, and I, I spoke quietly to him, tried to give him a little hope, which I think the maritally troubled often need more than anything else, hope that they can get through this. And, um, you know, the guy had been saved under my preaching. I felt I had some connection to him. But why did I do this? Why did I sort of meddle? Well, you know, this guy was getting ready to add sin to sin to sin to sin. And I know the damage that can be done, especially in a marriage. Sometimes things get so far, by the time you're ready to get help, it's too late. Too much damage has been done. And so, so I, I went and spoke to this guy um, with a helping 
spirit, I trust, not a harsh spirit. You can study Genesis chapter 3, and you can look at Adam and Eve, and you can see what happened to those guys when they fell and when they sinned. And all the selfishness, the anger, the lust, the greed, the jealousy, the trouble, the damage that can come in the midst of sin when it goes from bad to worse. And so when we we preach against sin, it's not that we are against people, we are for them, it's sin that we are against. And John had something very clear and very firm and very powerful to say to the believers here. And so he, he couches it by saying, little children, dear ones, listen to this. Sin is not your friend. And so he goes on to this clear expectation. What does he say here? Well, I write you these things that you may not sin. God does not want you sinning. He doesn't say, now that you're justified and that your sins are forgiven and you have this full pardon and your salvation is assured, don't worry about sin. Just don't worry about it. It's no big deal. He doesn't say that. He says, I write that you may not sin. That's his goal. Now the term for sin here is a common one. It means miss the mark, get off the narrow way, fail to comport with the character of God, and he doesn't want them going off that pathway even one step. Justification and our pardon does not give us a license to sin in the Christian life. When the new birth comes to us and we are born again of the Spirit, when the Lord saves us, the proper response is to struggle against sin. All the New Testament teaches this, as we can see clearly in the book of Romans. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Same chapter, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And very powerfully in the book of Titus, for the grace of God has appeared that we may sin and not have to worry about it, right? The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the clear expectation is that our justification does not lead to abounding sin, but rather to sanctification, opposing sin, hating sin, confessing sin, making progress against sin in order to please and glorify God. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had two problems with this teaching. One is uh, complacency. Sometimes I find myself, well, I'm forgiven of my sins, and I've got these sins in my life, and I'll just claim the pardon I'm forgiven. I know God accepts me just as I am. And I take kind of a a license with it. The fancy seminary term is antinomianism. I don't have to worry about God's holiness or God's commands. I can't live up to that. I have a blanket pardon from the Lord Jesus. And so, eh, I'm going to be complacent about it. The other error I have found in my life is despair. 
Here I am a believer, I'm saved, Christ has forgiven my sins, I'm a Christian, but I, I just can't seem to win the battle with sin. No matter how hard I try, I fail. So what is the use? I might as well just give up and give in, be done with the struggle. God isn't helping me. He hasn't delivered me. He hasn't changed me. Maybe someday I'll be delivered from my sins, but forget about it. I just can't do it. And this is despair and discouragement. And both of these problems lead to ungodliness, joylessness, and a lack of progress in the Christian life. One takes a casual view of sin, the other kind of gives into it with excuses. And the great challenge I have found is to keep a healthy balance with this idea that, I, yes, I am justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, my sins are forgiven. Yes, I have a blanket, glorious, wonderful pardon that will keep me forever. And then comes the command, I write you these things that you may not sin. How do I keep the balance there? Maybe you've experienced some of that complacency or some of that despair. And whenever we fall into the, either of those two things, yeah, we have to go back to the Lord and say, hey, Lord, help me. Help me here. Help me. Walk worthy of the call with which I have been called. But John is clearly saying, I write you these things, not that you may sin all the more, but that you may not sin. And so we are to receive this exhortation. We are to receive this admonition. We are to receive this command. Have you received it? Is it in your mind? Is it in your heart? Do you agree with this high and holy aspiration that we are to walk in the light and press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Uh, do you believe it to the point that you see some progress, that you have some victory, not giving in, not becoming complacent, walking in the light, pressing on, striving against sin? Now, there are many, many reasons to receive this clear command and exhortation. Number one, sin does not help us. Sin is the great enemy of the human race. Sin has ruined humanity. It has created a fountain of misery. Everywhere I look, I see the misery of sin. Yes, sin has pleasure for a season. Then it becomes the clutches of death. And I see this death and misery everywhere I look. Sin is an enemy of God. It's a dark disease in his creation. It's an assault on his character, on his mercy, on his love. Sin darkens the soul. It darkens the conscience. It does inward damage. It just isn't our outward errors and blunders. It does inward damage. It destroys faith. It tends to enslave. It makes us worse. Sin does not honor the gospel. It does not give a good testimony to the world around us. The whole point of the gospel is the end of sin, that one day God will crush the serpent under the heel of Christ. He will eradicate sin in hell forever. Sin is not going to win. Sin is going to be destroyed. We want to be on the right side here. Sin has finally caused the agony and suffering of the Lord Jesus. Sin sent him to the cross, and we look at him, and we see what it is, and therefore sin gives us a very foul taste in our mouths, 
as we see what the Lord Jesus had to do to forgive our sins. So we learn to see sin as God sees it, uh, as our enemy, that there's nothing good in it, that its pleasures are a deception, that it's a violation of God's creation, it's an offense against our loving Father, our merciful Savior against his plan for our lives, and therefore we strive against it. You see, John is writing, I write you these things that you may not sin. And he's writing with this full complement of theological conviction about what sin is and what it does to people. So brethren, have we received this holy admonition? Is it in our hearts that we're going to struggle against sin. When we get off the narrow way, we're going to confess that. We're going to go back to our pardon. And we're going to ask for God's help. We're going to embrace this struggle against sin. It's not popular today to do this, you know. I mean, we've got all of these cultural cliches, and I suppose for each one of them, uh, there's a grain of truth, you know. God hates the sinner, but hates the sin but loves the sinner. But let me ask you a question. Do we hate the sin? You see, yeah, we know God hates it. Do we hate it? Christians are not perfect. They're just forgiven. That's a pretty soft way of putting it. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm hapless and hopeless. I'm not going to make any progress whatsoever because I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And don't judge. This is the theological axiom of our society that no one's to be judged. I don't judge anybody, but God judges everyone. God judges me. I'll stand before Christ one day. This is just the way God made me. Boys will be boys. Forgot to put that one on there. I'm only human. Some of these, I mean, I put the clowns up there because all of this is really a clown show, isn't it? When you look at what the New Testament says. You know, Piper, Piper helps us. He puts it uh, this way. What is sin? It's the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. So let me ask you a question. When we sin, do we go to the left or do we go to the right? That tells whether we got the right spirit with this thing. If we've experienced the new birth and we're new creatures in Christ and we're walking worthy of the call with which we have been called, yes, we are still going to sin. But I hope we see a passion to return to God and confess what we are and what we have done, and we are restored to him in the proper way. We don't want to lose, use lowbrow cliches to excuse our sins and to give in to them. John doesn't. He says, I write you these things that you may not sin. 
Nothing could be more clear. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The grace of God has appeared that we might renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Yes, it is a struggle, but this struggle is a sweet thing to our heavenly Father and to our merciful Savior. And so we receive this exhortation. We take in this piece of spiritual food and we swallow it whole in the struggle against sin. This is our sanctification. Now, that's the command that John gives. It's very clear how this is to be approached. In the background, we have the doctrine of justification. But then he comes along and says, now we are, there is some comfort here too, because we're going to need comfort in this long struggle in our sanctification. I think often those who struggle the most uh, feel the pain of their sins the most. And so he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate. Now, uh, this word is used only by John in the New Testament. It's the same word that was used of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 in the Upper Room Discourse, uh, that word parakletos, which means helper, the paraclete. Christ is our helper here. And much has been made of viewing this as Christ as kind of, the, of a defense attorney going into court and pleading our case because this word is used of a legal advocate in the background of the New Testament period, but I think that breaks down because normally when a defense attorney goes into court to plead on behalf of the defendant, he pleads the merits of the defendant, doesn't he? He said, oh, my client is innocent of these charges. My client is as pure as the wind-driven snow. My client would never do such a thing that he is accused of, and they make all the arguments. But in God's court, we know that no sinner such as myself can possibly stand in that court in my own merits. I can't go in there and say, I'm innocent. I'm as pure as the wind-driven snow. So Christ is not a defense attorney. Rather, he stands in our place. He says, I will stand for this defendant because I am Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He takes our place. He grants us his identity. He is sinless, so we stand sinless. Not only that, but verse 2 says, he is the propitiation for our sins. He personally is the one who satisfied God's justice. Now, that's not a word we normally use propitiation. For example, if I said to you, hey, this afternoon after church, let's me and you go out and propitiate something. How about it? Sounds like fun. Let's go propitiate. It's not a word that we use, but it just means satisfaction. He is our satisfaction before God. He is our sufficient sacrifice. He satisfied the wrath of of God in his sacrifice for us. In the Old Testament, this word is used of the mercy seat, that gold piece that sat upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant where the high priest would put the blood of atonement. That was the place where God 
was satisfied with the offering made for sin. So Christ is our sufficient sacrifice, our atonement. Therefore, God requires nothing from us. We simply agree and receive this. That Christ became sin for us so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. And so we have an advocate. We have a sufficient sacrifice. We know we can return no matter how we have sinned, no matter how long we have sinned. We can return because we have such a one as this who will grant unto us a full pardon for all of our sins whenever and wherever they are committed. And so we come back to this wonderful pardon again and again and again. And this is how we keep going in the Christian life. This is how our sanctification is restored. This is how we stand. This is how we don't despair in ourselves. This is how we don't become complacent because this is so wonderful. We go back to it again and again and again, and we know that we have a Savior, and we know that sin cannot destroy our fellowship with God, that sin cannot rob us of the new birth. Sin cannot challenge our standing with the Father. Sin cannot destroy our salvation. We have an advocate. We have a sufficient sacrifice. And so we return to this again and again and again. This is our comfort It's our comfort when we sin a little bit. It's our comfort when we sin a lot. It's our comfort when we sin big sins. It's our comfort when we sin small sins. It's our comfort when we sin in secret. It's our comfort when we sin in public. He is our advocate. He is our way back. He is our comfort. He is our propitiation, even when we have sinned and we have done damage to ourselves, to others, to the name of Christ He is sufficient for this. And therefore, in the Christian life, no, we do not go on and sin all the more. We fight against it. But when we do sin, we know that we can return. And this repentant spirit is part of our sanctification part of our spiritual growth. Notice that the Lord Jesus here is called Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the only one who can do this for us. There's no one else like him. He's the only one who can satisfy God's holy and perfect justice. There can never be a doubt that the Lord Jesus as the one mediator between God and man is the one who can keep us in our salvation and keep us going in our sanctification. Notice this is valid anywhere in the world, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Sufficient for any fallen creature on the face of the earth, no matter what they have done, no matter how long they have done it. Anyone, anywhere, of any kind, any of the human species, anyone can believe and be saved, and if they believe and be saved, they will be kept by the advocate, by the one who has offered the sufficient sacrifice. That means you, whatever you have done, wherever you have done it, however long you have done it, there's a sufficient Savior for you and for me. 
And so, my friends, then, knowing this, how can we love our sins? How, how can we love our sins if this is true? See, that's why John says this so strongly. I write you these things that you may not sin. The Savior has pled for us, has gained our forgiveness. I think of his prayer in Gethsemane so often as he, in agony, gave himself to God for us. The old hymn, I Know My Redeemer, has a line in there I've quoted so many times. In fact, I used to put it on my Twitter feed. Yes, that's right, I am on Twitter. <laughs> he lives to bless me with his love. He lives. He lives to plead for me above. Think of it. How much he loves us. What a sufficient savior he is. What an advocate he is. And so when we sin in the battle and in the struggle, we remember we are his children forever, that we have nowhere else to go. We don't despair. We come in a spirit of repentance. We confess our sins. We get back on the narrow way. And that's our sanctification. Now, this is Doc Mar Dr. Mark Yarbrough. Recently, last year, I think it was, he was um, ordained as the sixth president of Dallas Seminary. Um, Dallas Seminary's had six presidents in the last hundred years or so. And I didn't know him personally, but you know, I appreciate uh, the big job that he has, and I was invited to the festivities, so I wanted to learn about it. In fact, they gave me a medallion here. See this, how nice this is? It's got the commemoration on the back, and, you know, I don't really need it, so, you know, it's for sale. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's about a thousand bucks, that's all. Um, but I'm interested in, you know, how he does, and I read something that he wrote that I think is helpful for us. He told the story of his 12-year-old self, and he had scraped and saved every dollar he had so he could buy this old used motorcycle. And it needed some work, and he saved his money, and he bought some parts, and he was a little bit mechanical, and he worked on it, worked on it, worked on it, and finally got it to where it was running, everything was looking good, and he had spent all of his money... And uh, he took his first ride on a Saturday. One Saturday afternoon, he took off down the road. I don't know where he was. Hopefully, he was in a quiet rural area for a 12-year-old kid on a motorcycle, you know. And uh, um, everything was great. He went through the gears. You know, that goes. And uh, 50 yards, 100 yards. And then suddenly, he heard a loud metallic pop or bang. And sure enough, as he coasted to the side of the road, he looked down and he saw a metal rod had pierced through the engine casing. What we used to call back in the day, uh, he threw a rod and the engine was ruined. One short ride is all he got. After all that hard work, what a disaster. And dejectedly, he was pushing the motorcycle back up to his house. His dad, unbeknownst to him, had witnessed the whole thing. And he hustled in the house, he made a phone call, 
And when Mark got back to the house with his tears flowing, his dad said, hey, hop in the car. I want to take you to the other side of town. I want to show you something. So they went for a little drive, and they, they came uh, to this small engine shop. And Mark, being a bright young lad, immediately put two and two together. And he told his dad, listen, Dad, I've spent all my money on that motorcycle. I don't have a dollar. I can't buy a thing. And you'll never forget what his dad said. His dad said, I've got you covered. I've got you covered. The price is too much for you, but I will pay it. And then you can have your project back. And like our Savior, he provides a way. He paid the price. He's got it covered for the undeserving, for those who cannot pay, a payment only he could make. And no doubt when young Mark got that new engine and took it home and went to work on his motorcycle, no doubt he worked as hard as he could to make it be what it should be. All it could be, that would be his passion after such a gift as that. And in the same way, knowing what we know about our Savior, about our Advocate, about our sufficient Savior, can we not understand the spirit of this holy admonition, I write to you that you may not sin? Should we not willingly receive this admonition and in our sanctifying walk, walk in the light, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions in our homes, in our churches, in our families, in our work life, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, struggling against sin to the glory of God. Shall we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for our wonderful advocate. He lives to bless me with his love. He lives to plead for me above. Oh yes, Lord. We open our hearts to receive this holy admonition that we may not sin, that we may walk worthy of the call with which we have been called, that we may be pleasing to you, that we may live with the spirit of repentance, and that we may understand the seriousness and damage of sin, and that we may join God's army and join God's mission to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil all the days of our lives. Help us, Lord. Help us. Help us come and be our parakletos, our paraclete. Come alongside of us. Help us, Lord, that we may give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.